Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening and ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where fine podcast products are found. And if you think if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find this show. This week, I'm joined by Dylan Palman, research fellow and executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality, and Dan Huger, librarian and research associate here at Acton. Today, we'll talk about the leak of a draft opinion in the Dobbs case before the Supreme Court that leaked almost exactly a week ago. We recorded this uh, program about 10 a.m. last Monday, and on Monday night was when news broke in Politico that a draft of the opinion by Samuel Alito in the Dobbs case, which, of course, we've talked about previously on this program. This is uh, a case in Mississippi. I believe it is a 15-week or 12-week um, – after 12 weeks ban on abortions, one of the heartbeat bill pushes. Uh, we knew this would be a huge case before the court. And we got something truly unprecedented. There are and have been leaks from the court before. Uh, it has been known what how certain opinions would come down, but there has never been a leak like this before of an entire draft opinion being leaked to uh, a media organization, in this case Politico, who published it in its entirety. Now, if you go back to last Monday night, uh, a lot of confusion about whether or not this was authentic. Uh, turns out that it is. It was confirmed by the uh, Supreme Court and by Chief Justice Roberts that it was a draft from February of an opinion by Samuel Alito uh, looking to be the majority opinion and that it was uh, was leaked. And there is now an investigation being conducted by the marshal of the Supreme Court. So glad the marshal of the Supreme Court is finally getting, uh, finally getting his time in the sun uh, into how this happened. So – Pretty much everyone else who's talked about this has talked about it in three categories. They've talked about the leak itself, the actual opinion itself, and the implications of all of this. That's been people who were talking about this right in the wake of it. So we're almost a week removed from when this leak happened. So I'm going to just throw it out there. Where should we start on this? I mean, I think I think you have to start with the leak. Um the leak is sort of the occasion for this discussion. And um, it's difficult to talk about because it is a leak. Um, this is not the court's final opinion. It may be the court's final opinion. But we don't actually know how the court will rule even though we have a draft of one of the justices. And often there's a lot of wrangling that goes on. These drafts circulate among the justices themselves. They get feedback. There's a deliberative process with all of these things. It's it's never, you know, the fact that there is a draft indicates that it's a deliberative process. If this was solely the creation of justice, if opinions were solely the creation of the justice that authored them, there would be no purpose to these drafts. Um, so that's that's the difficulty in talking about this. One of the other difficulties is the widespread 
press reaction. And there's a lot of people that don't seem to understand either what Roe decided, how that decision was modified in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and exactly what the the Mississippi law in question is. So, and the, and the leak is uh, – is is the fuel that's led to that sort of speculation and dare I say misinformation widely circulating about the state of abortion law in the United States. It is it is worth noting that in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, uh, it is widely known now that Anthony Kennedy was ready to vote with a majority of justices on the court to overturn Roe. And it is widely believed to have been uh, Lawrence Tribe who is the one who was able to cajole him somehow into changing his vote on that case. So Dan's point is a good one that, yes, this was a draft from early February. It is now the 9th of May. Um, certainly, uh, so the way the court works is after they hear oral arguments in the case, they take an initial vote in conference to find out where everybody is. In likelihood, all likelihood, you had – Five votes, the five votes we know about from this leak to overturn Roe and Casey. Uh, you have probably another vote in Justice Chief Justice John Roberts who would be willing to uphold the Mississippi law. And it is um, 15 weeks in Mississippi would be willing to uphold the Mississippi law but doesn't want to go as far as the other justices in striking down Roe and Casey. And then you have the three liberal justices on the court who would be dissenting. So the process is that you would get – you find out where people are. You would get the assignment of who would first draft the majority opinion of the court, which looks to be this Alito first draft. That gets circulated. Other justices weigh in. The justices who are in the minority have a chance to see it and they prepare their dissents. So yes, it is true that it is possible – that the final opinion of the court is completely different from what we saw in Alito's opinion. I have my skepticism of that, that that will actually happen. Uh, but nonetheless, we should note that there is nothing guaranteeing that the final opinion is going to look anything like what we read from Samuel Alito. Yeah, so for me, I mean, there's a lot, of course, to to talk about here. Um, in terms of the leak itself, there is um, a concern that it's illegal, for one thing. Um, uh, that's why the marshal is investigating. Um, but there's and also- it is a felony if the – whoever it is that leaked it is, of course, asked by the federal government if they are the leaker and they lie about it. That is a felony in and of itself. Right. Yeah. That, right. So just compound things. Um, but I think there's a there's a broader – problem here. Um, and it's something that is more than this isolated case. And that is all of our institutions of our society, our democracy, um, are in a crisis of trust. Um, and one of the few that has been has at least fared better than, say, Congress, for example, which has just dismal approval ratings, dismal ratings on trust or the media, for example, uh, is the Supreme Court. Um, even even with things like very uh, contentious opinions in recent history, such as the Obergefell case, which uh, um, basically made uh, same-sex marriage um, legal in the United States, uh, 
there's still a high amount of trust that, look, you know, we we go to court and we write our opinion pieces and we do our battling and then the court decides and we all just have to accept that to some degree. Um, and that degree, of course, also gets negotiated. So we have things like can, you know, the cases against bakers and all of that um, in the in the case of Obergefell. Um or you could go to the ultimate, right. to, to what degree do we follow the court and go full Jacksonian and they've made sure. the ruling and let them enforce yes. it. Yeah, right. There, there, is, there, is, there are extremes, of course, that we have not yet gotten to in the present. Um, but there is, there is a sense in which you have a lot of rhetoric um, coming from the left. Really, this goes, I think, to some degree, can go back to um, the, the putting off of uh, dealing with Obama's Supreme Court pick um, for, was it eight months? Something like that. Um, and yeah, the Garland nomination. Garland, the Garland yeah, nomination. After the death of Antonin Scalia. Right. Um, and he ultimately was not confirmed to the Supreme Court. He's current. Um, oh, I never had a hearing. General. Right. Never had a hearing. Um, and so they kind of put it off, filibustered it, whatever, which was very unprecedented for the time. Um, and then Donald Trump becomes president and gets to pick three Supreme Court justices. Um, and you... You know, you you that's that's major. That's huge, right? Um, and it's the sort of thing that has really stoked a lot of uh, feelings of just being treated unfairly, I guess, uh, from the left. Um, on the other hand, on the right, you had people saying there is no legislative way to overturn Roe versus Wade. It has to come from the courts. Um, you have people for generations now. Um, you know, it's been spend 50 years uh, uh, trying their, you know, people genuinely concerned about the lives of the unborn um, campaigning for this, for a candidate who would care about this issue in particular when they are making Supreme Court picks, you know, um, and weirdly they got it in Donald Trump, um, or at least uh, he was happy to choose from their list, right? Um, so you have all of this building and then all of this kind of partisan political venom now getting pushed into the Supreme Court in a way that um, even with other contentious issues, I don't think we've really seen it at this level. Even if we are going to try to, you know, separate those three elements like, you know, every other podcast that discuss this topic yeah. into the leak, the opinion itself and the implication, we're going to drift back and forth between yeah. them. But I, I want to add one more point on the the leak part of it. Um, and to what you were saying, Dylan, which is that the one of the other reasons that uh, it is, I think, viewed as such a big deal and we are so sensitive about the reputation of the court, because as you said, you're correct. It is one of those institutions that people have held a higher opinion of. But that has been under assault and it's been under assault for a number of reasons. You talked about a number of them. But one of the other reasons that it has been under assault is because – uh, to go back to the drum that I bang on this program all the time, the other branches of government, those institutions are not doing their jobs. Congress particularly has not been doing its job. It has been delegating much of it, its authority to the executive branch. And when it has difficult and prickly situations, it is more than happy. And the executive branch is also culpable in this to just say, we'll just let the court decide. Mm -hmm. And inevitably, the court is going to have to make difficult decisions that are going to have political implications. Um, 
because the political branches of government are not functioning correctly and they are not doing their jobs. Now, for the people who have been arguing uh, as Justice Sotomayor did in the oral arguments in Dobbs, that the real risk here, if there are five or more votes to overturn Roe and Casey, that this will result in the politicization of the court. Well, I hate to break it to everybody, but that's started a long time ago, at least as uh, recent as the actual decision in Roe itself, which removed an issue from the democratic process and put it into the territory of the courts. And to bleed very briefly into the substance part of it, uh, it did that in a way that provoked the kind of insanity we've had in our politics because it was not an issue that the courts should have been deciding. The You have this uh, agreement that there are, I think, truly honest brokers on the left and among them Ruth Bader Ginsburg who acknowledged that Roe was always built on a foundation of sand that it was not a solidly reasoned Supreme Court decision. And that only contributed to just the burning fire of this issue being resolved, being resolved nationally, being resolved by the court um, in a opinion that is not widely regarded as a well-reasoned and solid opinion of the court. It is worth, it is worth I think, separating out um, – those things that whatever one thinks of it, I'm sure we will get into what we think of uh, the issue of abortion. Um, you can look at the opinion, as you mentioned, as, as Justice Ginsburg did, and say, this is bad, right? This is poorly decided and the implications are going to be bad. So, like, you know, to take like – to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, let's say you're, you're part of the pro-choice left. Uh, would there have been a religious right in our lifetime as we saw it? Without Roe versus Wade, this vast coalition, Catholics and Baptists joining together, right in the 1970s. Um, I don't know. If and there what had prior prior to that largely had been seen as a Catholic issue, right? I don't know that you would have seen that kind of a, a broad political right wing coalition uh, without that. So there's unintended consequences, even for the people who won. Uh, you know, well, you had quotes. remember. You had a broad coalition that enacted legislation in various states, yeah. in the majority of states, prior to Roe, legislating abortion, uh, starting in Connecticut in the early 19th century um, throughout. And this is, this is the thing that often gets obscured with left-wing critics. They'll say, you know, there's this religious movement of this certain character that's sort of manufactured around this issue in an attempt to devalue and dismiss the criticisms um, of abortion policy. But, like, we would not have gotten to Roe v. Wade <laughs> if there hadn't been a century of legislative efforts to either criminalize or legislate abortion, according to various sort of arrangements in various states. And that's, that's, a, that's a history that doesn't get told and is sort of ancillary to this only in so much as – but when, when we're talking about these coalitions, this is, this is how legislation happens in a democratic society is you get broad-based coalitions 
that form around concerns that change law. And there's nothing unusual about this. Um, and this maybe this is a good time to turn to sort of what actually the law is. Wait, real quick before we get to that, I, I, let's dispense with one more part of the, the leak portion of all of this, which I think is worth at least bringing up. I, in the last week, have been trying to figure out – now, there's – I've heard some people raise some interesting theories that there is a, you know, not nefarious explanation for how this ends up getting out there, right? You know, you you have a – someone who's clerking at the Supreme Court. Maybe it's not one of the clerks. Maybe the clerk takes work home and it's the roommate of one of the clerks who's a progressive activist and sees no issue in deciding to leak this to Politico and burn it all down. Um, The – Predominant theory, though, has been that this is a leak probably from one of the clerks at the Supreme Court. And there's a back and forth on whether or not it's – is there more of a reason for a clerk for one of the justices on the left who would be in the minority in this case or one of the clerks for one of the conservative justices? And the theories are such – that if it's one of the justices, the liberal justices, the reason that they would leak it is to create the kind of firestorm that we have now to put public pressure on any of those justices to moderate their opinion, change their vote enough, maybe get in line with the Roberts third way here of upholding the Mississippi law but not overturning the precedent in Rowan Casey. Um, I don't think that that makes any sense uh, or at least that may have been their reasoning but I just don't think that it's – going to have the impact. I don't think it's having the impact that the theory would state. And the theory for it being a clerk from one of the conservative justices is that one of them is going wobbly and they leak this opinion to also apply public pressure to try to get them to you know, stiffen up their spine and stay with the majority that would overturn Roe and Casey. Neither of these, I think, they're both plausible in that that could have been the thinking, but I just don't think the outcomes that go along with those theories make any sense at all. Because if it's leaked from one of the liberal clerks, it's, to me, going to cement the votes of those five because we know who they are. And if someone changes it, we're going to know exactly who it was who changed, which is an enormous amount of pressure. And getting back to the the problems uh, that this will create, the fact that this leaked at the court is you're going to decrease the trust amongst the justices themselves. And if there's going to be less back and forth amongst the justices, to me, the most likely outcome of that is going to be more often than not, the justices are going to vote their priors. And however you want to consider Roberts, there are It's a 6-3 court in favor of Federalist Society conservative justices. This may end up making the court more conservative as a result of the damage that will be done to the process the court engages in. Yeah. I mean you can't – in order to have a deliberative body – and we've talked about this before. This this affects congressional leaders. This affects the ability to sort of dispassionately discuss this among the justices to attempt to to come to some sort of greater consensus than at least where they start. Um, And that that to not have that security to be able to have those conversations, to be able to circulate those documents privately, you risk the rise of 
factions in the court. Um, now, it's it's very easy, you know, in the press to talk about, oh, this is a 6-3 court in this way or that way. Um, and there's certainly a sense in which, you know, ideologically the court um, often comes down along those lines. However, everything that I've heard about the court until today or until, you know, these recent revelations is that it's in fact a very collegial body. Um, you have, you know, the two late justices, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Justice Antonin Scalia were famously close on a personal level and discussed and debated and disagreed on a whole host of legal issues, but there was never any sort of suspicion that they lacked collegiality or that they were locked in a sort of perennial conflict in the court's deliberations, even though often they came down on the opposite ends of particular decisions. And that that really impairs not only the legitimacy, but but the way the court has has traditionally functioned um, for at least you know since the since the Roosevelt administration. Yeah, I think there is real risk in the damage that this is going to do to the functioning of the court itself. If you're now going to make the justices more suspicious, and and you know, there's I, I'm I'm hopeful that we find out how this got leaked. Um, you know the. If it is some clerk, um, you know these are these are clerks. These are law school graduates. They aren't spies. The odds that they took every necessary precaution to make sure that they didn't find out, uh, no one could find out who this was, seems unlikely to me. Um, but I, I think there's also there, there's a reason that, as I pointed out earlier, it is the marshal of the court who is the one investigating this, not the FBI, which would include all the powers that the FBI has, the ability to subpoena um, companies like Google or Yahoo or whoever uh, might have clerks might have private email addresses with, uh, just not the same investigatory level. Uh, which I think is 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 interesting, and it's an interesting move by Chief Justice Roberts, who I think wants to keep this as much within the court as as humanly possible. So let's now that we've we've discussed the leak part of it, uh, let's move on to the actual opinion itself from Justice Alito. As we noted, this. It's not necessarily going to be what when the justices issue their opinion on the Dobbs case, what it's going to look like. But nonetheless, this is the first draft from Justice Alito written back in February that uh, is it rather remarkable and I have heard described by pro you know pro-life activists is pretty much everything your most devout pro-life activist could want from an opinion that overturns Roe and Casey. What were your reactions to it? I mean, I'm when I'm an editor, so when I hear draft, (laughs) I I guess I'm immediately skeptical that this is in any way representative of I, I know there's a process and it's different than publishing, but um, you know, some of the rhetoric I'm sure will get toned down, at least I would expect, um, uh, even if it's in substance, the decision is more or less, uh, you know, precisely the same as uh, as the draft that was leaked. Um, but I, I'm very much 
my my stance is still I'm just gonna wait and see. Like I I know I know I know the process from draft to publication and um and so yeah I don't know maybe that's I it just hit me on the wrong area of my brain or something like that. But that's that's just immediately where I went was to more the professional side of okay it's a draft we'll see we'll see what the the final <laughs> version is. The draft is interesting because it is actually not what the most pro-life, rigorously pro-life activists want, which is that the 14th an Amendment, an affirmative uh, yeah. right to life is articulated, um, which on 14th Amendment grounds, which are interestingly also the grounds that justices have in the past argued for Rowan Casey is on 14th and 9th Amendment grounds. Um, so it's not that. Um, it could have also been a victory for pro-life activists if the court had decided to merely expand the scope under which abortion can be regulated. And this is something that can't be stressed enough in terms of public misperception. Roe did not establish a constitutional right to abortion. It established a constitutional right to abortions in the first trimester. And then it said, you know, uh, lower legal scrutiny for regulation in second trimester and a lower still legal scrutiny for establishing regulations in the third trimester. Now, Casey revised this again in talking about and rejecting that trimester framework as essentially one that biological science cannot substantiate and that instead introduced a standard of viability. Now, we could simply extend that and revise that down and say the Mississippi law, which is actually it's, – uh, it's 15 weeks, um, which, is what, which is one more week than is currently legal in France which is 14 weeks. And this is the other, the international context is um, the United States has among the most permissive abortion regimes in the world. Up there with China and North Korea. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is, you know, this is something that folks in the United States, particularly pro-choice folks, do not understand. They do not understand, A, that there is not an unconditional right to abortion established in the United States, and B, that the regime, the abortion regime in the United States is among the most permissive in the world, which leads to this sort of catastrophizing analysis you constantly see. And part of this has to do with the time and place that Roe v. Wade was decided in the United States and it has to do with the way that that is – was tied in in many ways with the American feminist movement at the time and has become sort of part and parcel of this in a way that it really isn't in other parts of the world and is really the product more of historical accident than it is any sort of you know um, necessary logical link. You're playing the intro to my entire album side on how the misconceptions and just outright falsehoods that exist in relation to uh, Roe v. Wade and abortion policy in the United States. Um, what's interesting is the kind of 
the problems that you laid out in both Roe and Casey, right? So you have the trimester uh, issue in Roe, which the problem in Casey, they're basically saying that you know, medical science can't support this. What's interesting is that that is functionally the way that most people – when they think about the issue of abortion and we figure out where they shake out on it, essentially are is back in an understanding of trimesters that more or less public opinion in the United States is for majority of people is thus that in the first trimester in the first 12 weeks, they're more or less for uh, abortion on demand. In the second trimester, they are in favor of uh, restrictions, like the reason you would be accessing it. Um, you know that that bar gets higher, and they're pretty much opposed to it in the third trimester. Um, this is again one of the Antonin Scalia wrote often about the abortion distortion within the court that in trying to address concrete legal issues, when the issue of abortion is the lens through which you're looking at it. It just distorts the way we think about the court. It distorts the way we think about just about everything. Um, you're right on another point that uh, uh, the implication of the overturn of Roe and Casey, you think you, – when you get polls like this and you see that like 70 percent of people don't want to overturn, don't want to see Roe versus Wade overturned. Um, that is not an, an endorsement because people understand what the holding in Roe v. Wade is. That is a proxy for other opinions. And the proxy it is for other opinions is essentially, I think, two things. One, based on the misconception that if Roe is overturned, abortion is illegal nationwide rather than being returned to the states and to the legislation that may or may not exist in these states with trigger laws either criminalizing all abortions or uh, legislation that would make it permissible basically on demand and it would be an issue that was fought out amongst the states. Um, that is one of the misconceptions. The other is I think there's a number of people there who look at it and think – I just don't want to talk about this. Like, I don't want to have a conversation about this issue. And that has been one of the – that is actually one of the ways that um, – with the interesting implications of Roe and Casey as a legal regime, it is that it has prevented other than activist groups, people from really having to grapple with this issue. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get more into this as we get into the implications of all of it. But just the number of Arguments I've seen from people over the last week, I just – the line from Trilling comes to mind that like they don't present as arguments. They're more irritable mental gestures. They're non sequiturs. They are slippery slopes. Um, there is very little grappling with what is in Alito's opinion or – and what I think is the – just the reality that one does not need to be a devout pro-lifer to look at the legal reasoning in Roe and Casey and find it to be a mess and that it should be overturned because it is wrong and just bunk and that we, we've had 50-some years now of not having to politically deal with a very thorny and uncomfortable issue and there are going to be some pains now that we have to do it. But that working these solutions out on a state level is probably a go back to what I said when we discussed the Dobbs oral arguments. I said I think this has the possibility to actually be a stabilizing thing within our society, not to create more chaos. I stand by that because I think it will be good to force polities and legislatures to grapple with this and to use the mechanism that they should be using 
to address it rather than farming it out to the court. Yeah, so there's there's several um, dynamics at play here. I like Dan's point and yours about historical accident really converging. Um, but also, as you mentioned, the, the non sequitur sort of responses, um, I think it's amazing and maybe says something about uh, the state of activism on the left that it was less than 24 hours where Twitter went from abortion-related trends trending to Obergefell, Mm -hmm. right? Suddenly, the rhetoric within less than 24 hours was, oh, no, if this happens, LGBTQ rights are going to be in danger, right? Which actually— That's a slippery slope, yeah. I mean, you know, there's no relation between those two decisions at all. Um, Well— Okay, all right. I I would say that philosophically, from a legal philosophical point of view— um, if the opinion that Alito wrote that was leaked is the opinion of the court, then I would agree with people that Obergefell is on shaky ground from a legal constitutional perspective. But you know what? It always was because it is once again a case of Anthony Kennedy uh, here writing a uh, flourishing rhetorical op-ed rather than legal reasoning. What's different, though, is in reality, right, in implication, in the same way where one of the other concerns that was being raised is that, you know, oh, they're going to overturn, go back and overturn Griswold v. Connecticut, right? It's important to understand at the time Griswold v. Connecticut came before the court, one, it was functionally a stalking horse for what would become Roe and Doe. Uh, It was a precursor to all of that. States had, yes, uh, those prohibitions on contraception on the books, none of them were acting on it at the time. They were not being utilized. So I think in one way, similar with Obergefell, if the court were to say, yeah, we're overturning Griswold too, it would change things not an iota in this country. You're not going to all of a sudden have these huge pushes to criminalize and prohibit contraception in the same way that even if Obergefell, the implication I think is clear philosophically from the Alito opinion that it is also built on sand, does it change anything in reality? I don't think it does. Okay, well, fair enough. So maybe maybe some of the activists have a point. Uh, but my, I guess I wasn't, uh, maybe I was stating things too strongly, but um, what's interesting to me is is simply the associations that are connected yes. with abortion as an issue in particular. So in the 70s, it was feminism and women's rights. And of course, that rhetoric is still alive today. But it's interesting to me just how quickly that shifted to a different group. And if you go back historically, um, you can go way back. Uh, let's, let's talk Roman Empire. Um, abortion was a tool of the literal patriarchy. It was the paterfamilias had uh, right over life and death of everyone in his household. Um, and it was done away with by Christianity, which was a huge boon for women's rights. <laughs> Amazingly, it, it shattered this social structure. Uh, a lot of the earliest uh, women martyrs are martyred because they won't marry a pagan man due, you know, at the will of their father, right? Um, and And it's something that, Christianity changes. It it has a pretty strong prohibition against it, although it does 
you know, there are canons that uh, seem to be more merciful towards a woman who got abortion compared to a man who murders someone else, even though it viewed it in the very similar terms. Um, Byzantine law allowed for issues of, you know, if the woman's life is in danger, we can make exceptions, that sort of thing. But still pretty strong prohibitions uh, that make it all the way into the modern era. Um, early on, though, uh, let's say early 20th century, it's linked to uh, worry, economic worries about overpopulation. Uh, we have, you know, too many people, too few resources. Here's a way to have less people, right? Um, it was tied up with the eugenics movement. Let's, let's have the best people we can have. And, and you know, based on really bunk race science, um, there's all sorts of issues uh, at different times that this was associated with. Um, and so the the weird sort of snap judgments of oh this is this is this is just going to take away all of our rights as women or this is going to uh, go after whatever the other trendy issues of the day are it's just kind of it's a weird when you put it in a historical perspective it's very bizarre and a lot of times it's all based on a sort of non sequitur uh, sort of connection you get these curious. Decision, and you pointed out Kennedy's very famous passage uh, in Obergefell, which is, which is just b- bizarre. But you also get this language. You often get um, pro-choice activists criticizing pro-life activists as wanting to sort of ground the law in their religious commitments. And in reviewing Casey in preparation for this podcast, I come around this sentence. The destiny of a woman must be shaped to a large extent on her own conception of her spiritual imperatives and her place in society. This is the sort of nebulous and, in fact, you know, invoking the spiritual in the defense of the situation. Part of this is you just have, you know, you need to cut these Gordian knots of poor legal reasoning for us to return to a legitimacy in our institutions. You need people that are being, you know, you have people right now being told they can't legislate. They cannot gather with fellow citizens and deliberate and legislate because of vaguely articulated spiritual imperatives. Um, this is not, you know, I mean, you can you can make an argument for grounding things in historical rights of conscience, but these are not the arguments that are being made. What is being made is this very fluffy, nebulous, constantly revised every time we have developments in human biology because they become increasingly untenable. This is the other part of what I was saying earlier where you have the uh, Casey basically saying that science can't uphold the trimester distinctions that were made in Roe, so it replaced it with viability, right? Well, the problem is that's a moving target now. That is a moving target because of advances in medical technology and science that continue to show earlier and earlier and earlier um, viability, if not things that point towards viability, which is where you're getting the heartbeat bills. Um, And 
to me, it it seems, you know, you don't want to think of that things will inevitably continue along a certain line, but you would think that with the continued development and advancement in medical science, we're going to find out earlier, it's going to be scientifically confirmed earlier and earlier and earlier when uh, a child in the womb is viable. So it was always a moving target in Casey as well, but to stay on Casey for a moment, to add into everything you were just saying, Dan, we pull out that one passage from Anthony Kennedy in the Casey decision, which I think does a perfect job of understating just how messy and preposterous so much of the legal reasoning around all of this in this again, this is in, in an opinion of the court. Quote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. You know, this is a judge. That sounds like it could be on a Hallmark card. It is a perfect example of just how bizarre and messy the jurisprudence was around all of this because it was upholding something, Casey, uh, changing and upholding Roe was expected by a lot of people in the 90s, which again precipitates the, – the Casey decision precipitates the whole first things um, symposium on whether the regime had any legitimacy. Uh, it has messed up our politics and our civics for quite a while now. I think uh, there's there's an additional related issue here in terms of religion. I mean, we can criticize the Casey statement for its its rhetoric, um, but there is you know another side to that that the objection of oh people are pro life just because they're religion. Well, all of this has some connection to our spiritual side. They're not wrong. There's not a spiritual side. They're not wrong that there's there's a philosophical aspect. Maybe shouldn't be the very strange sort of existential grab bag of make whatever meaning you want out of reality. Um, but there there are religious questions. I mean, I mentioned the history. It was Rome, pagan Rome was totally for abortion, then Christianity happened and it went away. I mean, it, it very clearly was religiously motivated, but it was not only religiously motivated. And I think that is part of the problem. There was a philosophical grounding of what makes a human life and what worth does a human life have? The Romans, in fact, were okay with exposing infants, so they didn't even really care if something was a living human being um, because they didn't think it had any worth or any inherent rights or dignity unless it was a male estate-owning Roman citizen. Um, and then you get into jurisprudence, which itself is a science, and you have to get into not simply the the spiritual aspect and then the philosophical definitions, but how does that relate to law and the history of law? And that's something that you can't paper over with the first two, um, even if the first two do matter and they do factor into that. You have, and this is true in many religions, not just in Christianity, but in Christianity, you have a very strong natural law tradition, Absolutely. which says that these are not merely religious sentiments. These are not merely the internal spirituality of persons in a particular time or place. But this is in the structure of the universe itself and that this is deducible by reason apart from 
any sort of revelation, although revelation often not only confirms but articulates it. Um, and this is the th- this is the, the sort of nature, the impoverished nature. And you see this, you see this with folks, um, you know, even pro-life activists will often reduce this to I have a confessional identity and thus I have a position on uh, a pro-life position. And the reality of it is, is in order for this to be a part of reasoned public debate involving a plurality of citizens, you need to make a more rigorous argument to for it to be so. And an argument along along the terms of public reason that's accessible to everyone and folks are you know folks have been making those arguments for now generations and i believe those are valid arguments but i think i think i think too often you just you know those get those get devalued and dismissed in right, public they get conflated debate with and the, they get conflated yeah, with the yeah, confessional positions, which are often informed by this, but they do not rest solely on those. Right. Yeah, I think you you could see another version of it, too, with uh, a religiously informed and motivated belief that capital punishment is wrong, which, no matter how you feel about capital punishment, really doesn't have any implication whatsoever on the jurisprudence surrounding it, because it is expected expressly mentioned in the Constitution as a punishment for treason. So the idea that you can, um, just because of any kind of a motivation, we've seen plenty of jurisprudence around this, right? Breyer is still desperate for all of this, to re-examine something that I just don't think is re-examinable. Um, but I, I think Dan makes a, a, a good point about all of that. And I, I think it is Going back to what I said about public opinion, right? One of the reasons you get the 70% in favor of upholding Roe is not just because of the confusion about the implications of what an overturning of Roe does, but it is largely because it's an issue that makes people uncomfortable. They don't want to talk about it. And Roe, at least in a way, settles it. And I think that is one of the tragedies of the Roe v. Wade decision is that it settled it and it settled it in a way that act that in in some ways made gave people the ability to take a distance from a very difficult issue but it also you know it's funny some of the commentary uh, about this that you know this is going to i think it was um uh, Brett Stevens who wrote a just god bless him he tried um a piece the conservative case for upholding roe and it is problematic, um, as as you might imagine, um, and it part of it I think is in motivated by this desire to, uh, you know, not we we just settled it. We like Roe Ro settled it, and we we shouldn't overturn it again. Uh, we shouldn't revisit this because people don't like it. It's a difficult issue, and they don't want to grapple with it. But that's. I think one of the things that I think we would be better off if in a way that we were forced to do, this removes the thought of of abortion as a problem largely from our minds because the only people who can really do anything about it are nine people in robes. And for an issue on which, again, you have 
You certainly have an activist base on one side that wants unfettered access to abortion at any point in time. And you have people on the other side of it who want prohibitions on abortions in all cases or at least the vast majority of cases. And it is just not where the American people largely are on an issue that the Constitution just does not address and thus needs to be grappled with by citizens of a republic, civically informed, understanding what their role is in that process. We've been robbed of that by Roe. And in a way, it's probably a good thing that it's going to be entered back in there as painful as it may be in the coming years as we fight about it. Living together is very hard. Politics is very hard. And if the argument is that it's hard, so we shouldn't be able to do it, that is an argument for dictatorship. That is an argument for there being no vocation of citizenship. And that is extremely dangerous. I think uh, this transitions very well. I don't know if we want to yet, but to talk about the consequences yep. of should this decision uh, as written uh, be the final decision. Um, or at least something largely in this yeah. direction. There's let's a, there's a lot let's of presume things. that the final opinion may be changed in, in form and rhetoric, but nonetheless does overturn Roe and Casey. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of aspects we could talk about, but one you know, directly related to what you're saying is uh, what it does is it makes abortion rather than a national, like federal issue uh, that people, you know, not don't stake their whole campaigns on, but certainly get a huge amount of support uh, for presidential campaigns, senatorial campaigns, depending on where they stand on this issue. Um, now that's going to be a state politics issue. Uh, that's going to be something that it'll be really interesting to see. It's not that abortion is going to go away and, well, oh, no, it's settled now in the other direction. No, we got 50 battlegrounds now instead of one. Um, and that's going to be very fascinating. And we can talk about, you know, current laws that will activate and, and whatever and will change those those different battlegrounds in their legal environments. But um, it is interesting to me to think about um, how maybe somebody was willing to vote for someone who wasn't exactly in their camp, whether pro-choice or pro-life, on a state level or on a local level because they said, well, this is a national issue. And now that situation is reversed, uh, where now the more national candidates, well, they don't have any power over the state issue um, or this local issue. Um, and now you you kind of reverse the the roles for the people who are willing to be any sort of a swing voter or a flexible voter um, on that issue in the first place. Almost all the political action on this issue um, in recent memory and probably uh, for all intents and purposes going back to when Roe was decided has been symbolic. Uh, you'll have – Chuck Schumer, the majority leader in the Senate, um, introduced legislation earlier this year when Dobbs was being argued that was a essentially a codification of nationwide of abortion rights pretty much up until the moment of delivery. Uh, again, just to point out where the people are, the American people are on this, that is not does not reflect – where most people are on this issue. 
And again, you have 13 states that have trigger laws that would make abortion illegal in almost all cases immediately. Plus, you have had a lot of and I think we've seen a a trend in this. There's a cottage industry in poorly written legislation that makes an activist point. We've seen this with regard to the legislation relating to critical race theory in a bunch of different states that the drafting of this is not particularly good. I think it is probably true, and I'm interested for your opinions on this, that in the near term, because of how it's an election year and how silly season our politics has been for a number of years now, that you're going to get competing versions of this, the extreme version on one side, extreme version on the other side, um, an extreme version, just so people know what I'm talking about on, on the on the right. Um, there have been draft pieces of legislation. When you hear the story about how an ectopic pregnancy would be prohibited in a draft of certain legislation, I can't remember the state that it was in. I apologize for that. Um, you could read it that way. I don't believe that's what was intended. Right. You know, because you're not going to get an argument from pro-lifers that an ectopic pregnancy is uh, is a life um, in the way that a normal pregnancy is. They're different things. Um, But because uh, because of the way that we've been treating our politics, you get these poorly written pieces of legislation. So I think early on you'll get silly season, but maybe this is where I'm delusional I'm hopeful that you are going to get legislators who will have a reason to want to, on a statewide level, address this seriously, and you will get legislation that better reflects where the majority of people in the country actually are on this issue. One of the interesting things, the New York Times ran a piece back, and this was this was a while ago. This was not – this was prior to this leak – where it took a look at sort of the legislative landscape in the United States and sort of forecasted what would an overturning of Roe v. Wade look like. And they estimated, and I, you know, I it's been a while, so I haven't looked at the nuts and bolts of the model. But it looks like the effects of a of, of an overturning of Roe v. Wade, according to the piece, was a reduction in abortions between 10 and 15 percent around the nation, which is a lot. But it's also important to remember that we have seen a massive reduction in the number of abortions in this country since the late 70s. Um, This has been something that's been trending downward. Part of this is, I think, a shift in cultural attitudes about abortion. Part of this is uh, wider availability of contraception, I'm sure. Part of this is also um, legislation already on the books that has restricted the ability of uh, abortion providers to offer their services in various jurisdictions. Um, so we will we will see we will see I think a continuing trend along those lines. Um, and you're also going to get interesting cases where you have some states that have more recently legislated on this. And then you have some states like Michigan that legislated on it. Um, the last time the law was revisited was in 1931. Uh, Michigan had criminalized abortion since the 1840s. Um, and the current law, uh, which 
is, you know, was ruled unconstitutional. Um, but the current law, should Roe v. Wade be overturned, would make it a felony for a medical provider to perform an abortion unless it's necessary to preserve the life of the mother. And the law also makes it a misdemeanor to sell abortion drugs in Michigan. Now, Michigan has an attorney general who I think would not be inclined to enforce that law, but there are prosecutors throughout the state who may. So you will get you will also get that. You will get a bunch of states that, you know, the deliberation on these issues has been frozen for 50 years. And I don't know what the legislative consensus in Michigan is because we haven't been allowed to have one for 50 years around this topic. And those things will get renegotiated. You will get states, very left-wing states, that author that author legislation that will give very permissive uh, uh, legal terms. Um, you will get others that will be more restrictive, and uh, it will it will cause all sorts of interesting legal complications and, and quandaries. And one way that I fear for the legitimacy of some of these. You know, I think Eric is right that long-term reintroducing a deliberative process will restore faith in the legitimacy of our institutions. But in the short term, when you have this sort of legal chaos and you have prosecutors maybe you know, saying, I'm not going to prosecute any of these things, you will have other prosecutors saying, I am going to aggressively prosecute these things. It will create um, a situation in which it doesn't feel like there's a lot of rule of law. Um, and, and we'll provide, uh, I think, I think, uh, uh, you know, several sort of acute crisis points around the nation as this, as this unravels, but that might be the price we have to pay. Yeah. I think it, I think in that sense, it will get worse before it gets better. And I don't know how we could have avoided that for, again, having since the 1970s taken this issue away from the place that it should have actually been handled and put it in the hands of, you know, again, I want to be clear. I think the Supreme Court is, of course, legitimate and important. But in in this case, what it did in removing uh, something from the deliberative democratic process and into only the hands of nine of the elite of the elite in this country was not healthy to the polity of the United States. And I think to add one point, I can't remember who was was touching on this. I think it was you, Dan, that uh, of the people who are in for, I think, in the near and midterm and and long term as well, the biggest blowback for on their position um, is the extreme of the left. So there's a study from Notre Dame in 2020. Um, I'm looking at the uh, the headline of the summary of it here. National abortion study finds out-of-touch labels, knowledge gaps, appetite for moral discussion. And the the big takeaway from that is it's, it's an interesting read. But they say in the study that none, none of the Americans that they interviewed about this talked about abortion as a desirable good, that there are people who are willing to, I think, at least acknowledge what I think more people should acknowledge, which is this is a hard issue. It is a very difficult issue in terms of, again, you may have a religiously informed, you know, as 
Dan and I are both Catholics, um, we know where we are on the issue of abortion. Now, what that means in the civic process, in context of government and law, is a different question. But you now have had over the last, I think, 10 to 15 years, a rise in that small but very loud, especially online demographic that wants to talk about abortion in the way that no American in this Notre Dame study wanted to talk about it as a positive good to shout your abortion, to fail to have understood as much as you may dislike him for plenty of reasons. Bill Clinton, politically speaking, was on to something in the formulation of safe, legal and rare. It was a good slogan that approximated going back to what I talked about, the trimesters of where Americans actually are on this issue. But yes, I think it is going to get worse before it gets better. When you've been robbed of the proper way of doing something for 50 years, you know, you need to put a little grease into the machine before it is going to start running smoothly again. I mean, definitely, you know, in the possibility, I'm sure there will at least be acute cases, if not widespread issues. Um, Media will cover these things and it will incentivize people to, again, uh, shape local and state politics around it. So you will get legislation that will deal with this, hopefully, right? Um, And that's very much, to some degree, what ought to have been happening, right? So um, it'll be interesting to see uh, how the public focuses now on their state. Um, and it's interesting to me to think about, um, yes, there are 13 states and they have trigger laws. There are, I think it's seven or eight more that have, like Michigan, that have laws on the books before Roe versus Wade that prohibited abortion. So it's not totally clear, do those now go in effect? Could they, will the attorney generals of those states, uh, you know, prosecute those laws? Um, but, a state like Ohio, I think, has one abortion clinic left open. Uh, Texas is about the same. One or two, um, I think. There have been local movements in a lot of states, and again, in both directions, uh, left and right, uh, to the point where I think a lot of people might be surprised at how little changes. Uh, there, there, are, I do think there are going to be real cases that'll that'll be a big media blow up and it'll get tossed around on social media and whatever. But I think for a lot of people, they'll kind of look around and be like, I thought this was going to be the end of the world and basically nothing has changed. Uh, maybe that's too, uh, uh, I don't know, dismissive of a take. Uh, I will, uh... I, I, I kind of think it'll be surprising to some people how, oh, you know, whatever your position is, oh, we still have a ton of work to do. It's just on the state and local level. It's yeah, not, I, I actually think yeah. you were absolutely right about that. And it, to just look at the immediate political impact of all this for a moment, you you probably have Democrats who are hoping that this is the savior. You know, the Democratic Party looks to be in for a very rough November. Uh, the generic ballot would indicate that Republicans are going to take back the House and might take back the Senate as well. And they think that this issue may be um, you know, Roe and, and Casey being overturned in the Dobbs decision is the kind of savior that they've been waiting for. And I, I think that's not 
what's going to happen there. I think if you actually look at where people say the abortion is is an issue of importance to them, for the people, there are people for whom it is everything. They are the single issue voters on the left and on the right on this issue. Nothing is changing with those people. They may get a little more motivated, but nothing is changing with them. Um, For most people, it's fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh down the list of priorities. The You're not going – a lot of the other things that are sucking up all of the oxygen in the world right now, um, still issues related to COVID, inflation, gas prices, supply chain problems, all of those things are still going to be there in November. It it just seems, especially when you put it in the context of of what we've been talking about, that – is not going to drastically alter the landscape in the way that that common conception that seems to always exist, that if Roe is overturned, abortion is illegal nationwide. You know, when people could come out of their caves and realize that it's pretty much seems the way that it did before, I think you're right. It is not going to be as catastrophic. And as a result, you know, it will it Will there be a noticeable impact? Um, I think in some places you're, you're inevitably going to have politicians because campaigns are run by candidates who are people who are going to say things that are dumb and they're not going to handle themselves very well. That's going to happen. Somebody is probably going to lose a race because of comments they make about this case or abortion in general. But by and large, I don't think it is going to have anything like the monumental impact that so many people seem to presume that it will. And this represents, you know, again, all of the trends over the past, you know, 50 years have been, we are seeing a decrease in the amount of abortions through a combination of factors. But it's literally a rarer and rarer occurrence in public life. Um, And I think there are folks that are sort of trapped in 1970s America where they think that this is, you know, part of, you know, the vanguard of a new social movement and that they're, that's going to mobilize all these voters. And I think, you know, and as Eric has pointed out, like, Attitudes about abortion, for better or worse, are very complicated in the United States among the general populace. And most people do not mobilize around these issues. And I think introducing that deliberative process again has a way to normalize this debate and for us to build sort of a constructive dialogue about it. Short term, I'm not optimistic, but long term, I think this is, I think this is good for everyone. Dan, to be fair, given the litany of issues that I think will be at the top of people's minds in November, um, energy prices, inflation, a recession – Maybe people could be forgiven for thinking that they're still trapped in the 1970s because it sure sounds like we are trapped in the 1970s given uh, that issue palette that we are all looking at. I want to ask one question uh, before we wrap up the program here. Uh, So we've talked a lot about this issue both related again to the leak from the court. We've talked about the actual legal cases themselves and the implication for all of it. So – my question for the three of us to answer is 
will we as an American society, and again, keep in mind that point that one of you made earlier of how out of whack with really the rest of the world um, abortion policy in the United States has been. Will there be a time in American history where we look back at that abortion regime as barbaric? Yes. I mean, I think – I think you will get you will get what historians always do is they is they complicate this story and there are sort of you know there take a look at one one of the things that's very very different between now and the 1970s for instance is how much social stigma is attached to an out of wedlock birth mm. You have a very different world today where you have very conservative, very religious folks that will embrace and celebrate a young woman who finds herself in a situation where she is a single mom that I think is a very – which is a, a social shift. Um, you have now I think a greater compassion – understanding um, from society at large to folks who are in those situations. Um, you know, and that's that's something that historical, you know, the, there's a way in which because of social stigma of out-of-wedlock pregnancies, this is like an animated – you look back at literature in the early 20th century and how many – plot points are, oh, so-and-so goes away to Switzerland so that no one's the wiser. And the reason is this is a way to escape shame for the family and a way for entire families to escape shame rather than embracing, supporting, loving unconditionally folks who find themselves in trying circumstances. So that's going to be part of the story. And part of this is, is that as a society, you need to embrace that responsibility for neighbor. And when you embrace that responsibility, which begins with compassion and understanding and a looking not to push these people to the margins, but to integrate them, to love them, to bring them closer to the center of our lives. Um, so I think I think historians looking back will see it as a barbaric practice, but also realize that the society, the values of the society at that time um, were in a sense barbaric as well in the way that they stigmatized these people, in the way that they sought to, you know, ignore them, to get rid of inconvenient persons. And this is – inconvenient persons were not just the unborn. Inconvenient persons were the mothers. Inconvenient per, – you know, th and this is this – is, and I think – you, you will get that. It, it will be wonderful to read historians 100 years from now writing about this. Um, it's difficult. Things can turn. They have turned many times on this issue in the course of history. Um, Dylan bringing up the sort of Roman legacy is indicative of that. But what, what are your thoughts, Dylan? I think it depends on the historian. Um, 
which I realize is not as hopeful of an answer. I liked your answer a lot. Um, Lord Acton said that uh, history is a teacher, not a master. It is full of evils. Um, I think good historians know that and they look back and they do complicate things um, and hopefully they do so with an eye towards compassion. Um, but there are historians of every era. There will be immediate reactions, as we've seen, that oversimplify and that push things into convenient, politicized tropes that want to justify whatever cause of the present. Um, the causes may change, but that impulse will not go away. Um, there will be people 50 years from now. I mean, bad takes on history happen all the time. We talk about them in, in other topics of stuff that, you know, um, was it? Patrick Deneen, you know, wrote something about, well, you know, uh, the Federalists were all like Rousseau and Locke and then the Anti-Federalists, they were the real conservatives. And just like this really strange reading of history that you're like, this is not borne out by any of the actual evidence before us. That happens all the time. Mm -hmm. It will happen with this too, unfortunately. That is my expectation. I, I think there will be good historians, whatever their politics, who can look at it and can look at the complexity of it um, and can be compassionate on people from the past that they may not understand fully or agree with fully. Um, I, you know, I have my own convictions. I do think, uh, you know, I believe that the life of every human being is worthwhile and of, of inherent inestimable dignity and should be protected. Um, so yes, I think it's a barbaric practice, but, uh, I don't, I, I don't think that every historian is going to necessarily tell the story that way. I think you're right about the problem of historians as you detail it there. Let, let me answer it this way. I think by and large, given the passage of enough time, uh, medical abortion is going to be, especially very late in pregnancies, is certainly going to be looked back on as barbaric. I think the shift in what we're going to fight over on this issue is going to be more towards things that are uh, – done that are not surgical as abortion becomes not a surgical procedure but one induced by drugs, one um, handled uh, in other less graphic and vivid ways. And that is the argument that we're going to be having for a long time. But I actually feel fairly confident from a the surgical medical perspective that is going to be looked back upon very poorly. But I want to draw on what Dan was saying as well, which is there was – we talked earlier about the non sequitur arguments that are just all over the place right now on this topic. And one of those – and one of the, the kind of most laughable to me um, – I feel bad laughing about it because there's serious implications of it – is this if you're not in favor of you know it not costing anything to have a baby, if you're not in favor of universal pre-K and free education and all of this litany of other things uh, that are all policy program prongs, um, then like you don't get to be pro-life or something like that. You're only pro-birth. You're not pro-life. Um, that's a very dumb argument. Um, you know, would, we wouldn't judge the uh, the human dignity and the worth of the life of a five year old on the same grounds of all of that. It was like, oh, if you're not in favor of all of those things, well, then there's no need for that five year old to continue living. It, it it's a dumb argument. However, Dan is right about something that the um, the number of people who have fought so valiantly on this issue. Uh, 
The same kind of support and passion should go to things such as crisis pregnancy centers, to caring for people who find themselves in these positions, to supporting people within your communities, within your church, who find themselves, um, who've made choices, they are pregnant and need support. Um, this has nothing to do with whether or not your position on being uh, on believing that life begins at conception or your political positions on abortion are invalidated for not supporting certain other policy goals. This is truly the kind of subsidiarity point that we should be thinking about these things and caring about these things at the most local level. Support the people that you can know on a personal and human basis in a way that extrapolating everything out to a national level that says we should just provide all of these government programs to send people money or care for other people can't ever possibly do. The government cannot love you. Another person can love you. So I think more time and energy should be focused on those kinds of things that we can do to help people who find themselves in those positions where they would want to seek an abortion, to help and love and care for them should be the kinds of things that we are doing and focusing as much of our time and energy on as we are debating the legal implications of Roe v. Wade and Casey and Dobbs and the political implications of that decision and the political battle over this issue. That's what we should spend a little bit more time thinking about. Let's call it a wrap there. I want to thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. And if you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes where you're going to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind. Or you can just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Once again, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Dylan. Thanks to Dan for the Acton Institute. This is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. <laughs>